the Hilliard Studio Podcast, your resource for everything happening in the Hilliard Studio Method world. Need some new gear for the summer season? Because you're one of our loyal podcast listeners, we've got a deal for you. Take 20% off all apparel at HilliardStudioMethod.com by using the promo code PODCAST. That's 20% off all apparel at HilliardStudioMethod.com by using the promo code PODCAST. Thanks for listening. And now, here's your hosts, Liz Hilliard and Lee Canelli. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz Hilliard, along with Lee Canelli, And we are so excited today to have Rebecca Fallon with us. She is a clinical and health psychologist. She is the director of wellness at the Sotil Center for, and we all need this, resilience. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Hi. So glad to be with y'all. So Thanks for being Lee, here. Lee, give us the real background on, on Rebecca. Right. So she might be super smart and all those fancy things, <laughs> but we go back a long way. We've been known each other, been friends since first grade, yes. went to high school together, college together, all the good stuff. And what's the best part about Rebecca? Besides being a super, super famous speaker and author, she is also... also a Hilliard Studio Method trainer. Yes. Not currently, but you are right. always one. Right. Yeah. Once one, always one. Yes, <laughs> I am. All those things. So thanks for having me. Well, Tell us a little more about yourself, what you do. Yeah. So as Liz mentioned, um, I am the director of wellness at our family business, which is the Soteal Center for Resilience. We're located in Davidson, right north of Charlotte. And um, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. What I do these days is what I call resilience coaching. So I have a variety of clients, most of whom are kind of what I would call high powered, busy people with busy lives and just looking for some support in how to thrive emotionally, um, physically, you know, I think physical wellness is a big part of emotional health. So I have kind of a holistic view of wellness, um, and really help people figure out how to thrive both at work and at home. Great. Well, that's why we were really interested in talking with you. We are all going through a very, very tough situation in the whole world. In our community, it feels like it's literally on fire. Um, And every day, and I think every moment for all of us, it is a struggle to find our balance. And when you said resilience, I think the whole country is looking for resilience. Mm -hmm. So what is, can you speak to us a bit about how to handle literally just the, the stress of moment to moment, news cycle to news cycle. Yeah. I mean, so the concept, literally the definition of resilience is to go through a difficult period of time and come out stronger somehow to grow in some way, as opposed to being kind of demoralized by it. And that is a challenge right now for us, I think in unprecedented ways. Um, Right now, what everybody in the country, everybody in the world is dealing with is a a really specific kind of stress that we call high demand, low control stress. So situations that are very demanding of us emotionally, psychologically demanding of our attention, our time, all of our coping resources. And yet we feel a very low sense of control. We don't really know what to do or how to do it. And that type of stress is exhausting and um, it causes the most symptoms of distress, like Mm -hmm. feeling depressed, feeling anxious, having trouble sleeping. I mean, all the manifestations of that. And so what I think is more important now than ever is to remember that managing that type of stress always comes back to trying to stay focused on the stuff that you are immediately in control of. So I mean, I know for me personally, the the worst days are the ones where I focus on all the stuff I can't control. And sometimes mm-hmm. my mind goes there and I just spin out about stuff I can't directly do anything about. My better days are the ones where I say, okay, but right now what I can do, what is the next right thing to do? I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to Zoom a Hilliard Studio Method class. I'm (laughs) going to, you know, meditate. I'm going to connect with my kids. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, whatever it is, um... And if we keep focusing on the stuff we can control, that's how people get through difficult times, maintaining some level of resilience. Um, I've I've noticed that, and we've talked about the way we've gone through this before, as I've learned to meditate, not learned to meditate, have always meditated, but have found meditation 
again and also more helpful. And I finally quit trying to do it the right way, whatever the quote unquote right way is. But for those of those listening that maybe don't understand meditation and how you go about it, can you kind of speak directly to it? Like give us one or two points that might be helpful for those who go, I don't have time to meditate. Just Mm -hmm. one or two things that people can do. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I'm not a meditation expert. There certainly are those people. So if you want in-depth meditation, mindfulness training, I would, I mean, Charlotte has a a thing it's called the Center for Mindfulness, um, which is amazing. Um, There are therapists who specialize in that. So that's one option. But for the the rest of us who just want to sort of explore it, I think a couple of things are key. Number one, don't get stuck in the story that meditation is not for you. (laughs) I was one of those people, most busy, high performing people think that, you know, there is now so much research about why meditation is important especially for high performing people. So if you're someone who says, well, my brain is too busy or I am too busy, you are the person who needs to be (laughs) meditating more than anyone. And I am that person. And, um, I think it's important to not be intimidated thinking, well, that means I have to sit for an hour a day and chant. Meditation can be three minutes and it can be very restorative in three minutes. Meditation, you know, mindfulness can happen while you're washing your dishes or while you're doing your walk in the morning, um, driving your kids around. You can find moments of mindfulness if you are intentional about it. So I would say don't be intimidated there are tons of, of great resources. I mean, there are some apps I would definitely recommend that really, if you're a beginner, will walk you through and they make it very approachable. Um, but if you want to start right now in the next five minutes, you just sit and try to focus on your breath for one minute at a time. That's how meditation starts. And the thing to know is you're not going to think you're good at it. You're immediately, you know, we've talked before about self-criticism versus self-compassion. Those of us who are pretty self-critical in general, which I am, you will be self-critical of the way you're meditating. And (laughs) one of the best things about meditation is that it can help cultivate some compassion to kind of replace some of that criticism that is often running through our brains all day, every day. I love how you said mindfulness, because sometimes meditation feels like an act that, as you exactly said, feels like takes time away from something else we should be doing, which is exactly why we should meditate. But just starting with mindfulness, I think has been the way I quote unquote meditate. It's like I find the the action that I'm doing that lets me know I'm a little stressed out. For me, it's my shoulders up to my ears so that when I go, oh, there it is, I just drop them. Mm-hmm. That mindfulness allows me to slow down. Yep. So I think that's a really important part. But Liz, you're you're like on the sofa with crystals meditating. I know, I know. I, I've, I've been trying to do it and, and have done it on and off all of my life. And I know the benefits of it. And I know the fact that I am a type A personality and I move and I am quick about getting, I'm very multitasker. So for me to sit down and meditate is very, very difficult, which is again, maybe it's because I'm competitive. I also know it's good for me. I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be able to do this. So every morning, most mornings, um, I try to go into my little room with my crystals and I light my candle. And some days it's literally five minutes. Maybe it's just 10 deep breaths. And it's amazing what deep breaths can do for you. And, uh, and, I will not, I will focus literally on my breath most of the time. If I have an intention, I'll, I'll focus on that. But there's some days we're so busy, I think getting up or lying in my bed before I even reach for my phone, which that's a whole nother conversation. I'm sure you'll talk to on in a minute is I just imagine my day. I see my day and I see it more peacefully than, because I know when I pick up the phone, I'm going to see the news. Right. That's where my eyes are going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't there something to like the f- flight? What is it? Fight or flight? Fight or flight. Yeah. Right. So and where the breath comes in. Definitely. I mean, that's a great point. If we go back to that high demand, low control stress, 
focus on what you can control. One thing we can always gain control of is our breath. And there is fascinating research about the magic of taking eight to 10 really deep abdominal breaths. Mm -hmm. It immediately lowers blood pressure, slows your heart rate down. For those few seconds, your brain stops pumping out cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And eight to 10 deep breaths, it takes 30 to 40 seconds to do really deep breaths. I've timed it. And (laughs) this is a strategy I use. It seems so simple and so common sense, but it's so overlooked. And a lot of my clients are people like physicians or business owners. And we will talk about, identify the periods of your day that are sort of transition points, like before you walk into the OR to do surgery or while you're scrubbing in for that surgery, you do the breathing. When you pull in the garage at night and you're transitioning from work to home, take 30 seconds to do the breast. You know, it's setting yourself up for a little bit more presence and calm as you kind of transition into the different parts of your day. So, you know, I love it that to your point, even if meditation means 10 deep breaths, that is still meditation. And that Mm -hmm. is so much better than doing nothing. And for people who are type A and busy, our sympathetic nervous systems tend to be ramped up all the time. So we're in fight or flight a lot. Mm. And in order to have that parasympathetic calming response, we got to create that. We have to be intentional about creating the moments where we let that happen, because I'm sure you guys are this way. I was this way for years. Any kind of calm stillness felt like wasted time. (laughs) Like I could always be, well, what should I be doing? Multitasking, as you said, I could be working out more or working more or whatever. And it took a long time for me to recognize not only is it okay to have stillness, but there is incredible value in having Mm -hmm. stillness. It sets me up so much better to perform well in everything else that I want to do. And so I'd like to go to stillness brings you into your own power. And so we've talked about a Hilliard studio method since the day that we opened the doors about finding your own power. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people now there. Everyone actually now is at home. Almost everyone except essential workers that really need to be at their jobs. And that's very stressful. And I think you just spoke to that. What about the moms and the dads and the sisters and the brothers and the kids that are home and they can't, they're experienced for experiencing stress for the first time in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole different ball game. And so I, I say at, at our studio, I say, find your power where you are. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes finding that power means to get still and to breathe and remember I am here right now. I've just, I've got to own my space. I might have three screaming kids in my ears mm-hmm. um, and, a, and a husband or a wife that is driving me up the wall. So right. they might not be that type of personality, but these breaths are going to still them and find their own peace and their own power. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I so think true. power too. I mean, I was thinking about this as in relation to talking with y'all. Um, one of the things meditation and stillness often does and has definitely done for me is help cultivate some self-compassion, which hopefully then translates into compassion for everyone around you. You know, the hope is that if you're cultivating that within yourself, you're putting that out in the world. And number one, we need nothing more right now in the world than compassion (laughs) and trying to understand each other. So but, but the other thing that occurred to me was I feel like the opposite of self-compassion is self-criticism. And what self-criticism does is stifle that power. You know, anybody who's ever tried to do anything knows this. If you, we think if I beat myself up enough, I'll get better at this, <laughs> or I'll get better at this diet or this workout or this homework I'm, or whatever it is. And the truth is, if you look at the research, the people who are most consistently successful and resilient are people who practice self-compassion as opposed to self-criticism. Um, I know we all just watched the Michael Jordan documentary, but yeah. he has this amazing quote about failure, right? I, have I so love many that times. quote. Yes. Yeah. That is self-compassion. That's what he's saying. I forgave myself. If mm-hmm. he had ruminated in his failure and gotten really self-critical, yeah. he would not be Michael Jordan. We wouldn't right. know his name. So that's a perfect example of seeing failure as, you know, self-compassion means when I screw up because I'm a human, I don't berate myself. I get interested in it Mm -hmm. and I go, wow, that's interesting. Let me accept that. Let me be kind to myself. Let me get curious about why that happened and then let me move on from it. And so I think 
the be powerful motto to me represents some of that as well. Like understanding right now, it is so hard for everybody. We are in a pressure cooker together. We have no past experience to draw on families. Everybody is stretched to the limit in terms of patience and responsibility. And so we've got to be compassionate with ourselves and with each other about navigating this. That's That's incredible. Brilliant. Yeah. I was going to circle that right back to just thinking of clients on the mat when they usually come into the studio for the first time, whether or not they are new to working out or have done it all their lives, everybody's experience is different. And what that means that I think a lot of people come in and think, Oh, I've got to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you walked in the door, you've done it. And so whatever you can do that day is successful. Yeah. It feels like we've been practicing and, and I know keep, we are bringing it continually back to our workout, but that practice of that workout, which we've always asked at Hilliard Studio mm-hmm. Method, work to your edge. Well, we are living on our edge right now. <laughs> yeah. And so when you work to your edge, you give it a moment, you take a breath and then you come back to it. And that's our workout. And I almost feel like that's what we've got to do. I mean, we're, we're in so many, there are so many issues going on in our world right now. And it, it is literally up in flames, like we've already said. So taking that breath is powerful yeah. and that self-compassion. And, you know, how is it is the three white women sitting at this table, mm-hmm. we're, we are in uncharted territory in that. So mm-hmm. Can you help us with this? <laughs> it's hard. Ready? This is Go. very hard. We want to be so, I know as a brand, I'm trying to be very conscious of what's going on around me mm-hmm. about Black Lives Matter yeah. and how we were just talking before we started that for generation after generation, Black people have been conscious. And am I saying this the right way around white people and the tables have turned. Mm -hmm. And now I'm conscious of the fact that I am very unsure of what to say to my black friends. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Well, and I think maybe we say nothing and we listen and we learn with a whole lot of humility. Um, because I think as three white women of extreme privilege, we, um, we don't know what we didn't know. I think Mm. I am as guilty as anyone of privilege as being complacent in my privileged non-racism. You know, I told myself (laughs) I'm not racist. What does that mean? You know, and, and I did that because it made me feel good to do that. And what I think we're all realizing is that is far from enough. (laughs) What it takes is being actively anti-racist, which means you will get uncomfortable. Right. That's the point. Mm -hmm. You will also be humbled and you will, I mean, the last thing people need is more white people's (laughs) ideas. That's what got us here. It's time for us to be quiet. It's time for us to be quiet and learn (laughs) and listen. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. But again, that self-compassion comes in there because if we just all feel guilty and critical, then we do nothing because that's paralyzing. And so we can have compassion for ourselves that now that, you know, my Angelou, when I know better, I do better. Great, great concept. I know better. The, the thing that has to come next is I start doing better. I have to change. Um, so for me, what that means is just being really curious and mm-hmm. listening and trying to learn and really understanding that I'd, I'm not the one who should be speaking right now. Right. I, I don't think. And, and so therefore, I don't think we will speak on racism because we are not the people that should be speaking on it. But the speech that we should do to ourselves is what yeah. you right. said yeah. is self, self-forgiveness. Forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Right. Just, it doesn't do any good to feel but, guilty. Yeah, we'll be stuck. Yeah. And right. so to not be stuck, we will forgive ourselves. And I know Lee talks about that a lot. I mean. Right. I mean, I think in our, it doesn't matter what topic you're discussing or how you feel guilt about whatever it is in your life. I mean, I think each of us, whatever we struggle with can go into a guilt, shame. Yes. And guilt and shame, you know, we're so good at them, particularly (laughs) women. I mean, we're, we are experts and they are the most useless emotions. God, is that the truth? I mean, really beyond like, okay, I feel guilty. I, therefore I'm going to make amends. Okay, great. Mm. If that, Right. But being stuck with guilt, shame, especially is just a catalyst for so much negative stuff and it's never useful. 
And so how do know, we, okay. right. I was going to say, how, how do, we, do we not have shame because, or I'm, yeah. I'm going to go one step back. How does that get cultivated in our lives? That's a good point. Mm. And then what do you do with it? Oh, good. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think, um, I think as women, I'll speak as a woman because I'll, that's, you know, I can speak to that. I think that we are given a lot of, um, subtle and loud messages about what it means to do things the right way. And that if you don't, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of your body. If it looks a certain way, you should be ashamed of your sexuality. If it's different than this, you should be ashamed of you. I don't know your marriage or your children, if they're not acting a certain way. And, and a lot of that is some of that is self-imposed. Some of it is just messaging that we absorb, I think throughout mm-hmm. our lives from the families we grew up in, from our peer groups, whatever. And, um, I think on the opposite end of the, the spectrum from shame is self-compassion and self-acceptance mm-hmm. and just, owning, you know, I'm not doing everything perfectly, but shame isn't going to help. No. Yeah. You know, we talked about this on the podcast when we talked to Madison Kennedy about body Mm -hmm. image. Mm -hmm. And I think there, you just hit on it. There's a lot of shame in that and how it doesn't matter how perfect or imperfect your body is. I know it is true for men too, but especially as you say, for women, it's been very hard. And Lee had a great compassion. Uh, You had something very interesting to say about, how you felt about it on that podcast, which mm-hmm. you want to reiterate a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I think that's always been a part of the story that I tell myself. And as I've gotten older, trying to rewrite that story mm-hmm. actually about body image. And really, I'm going to just toss it to you, Rebecca, because I think you have a great maybe analogy, like the mental gymnastics that it takes Yeah. And the stories we write about ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one thing that I have realized through meditation, but also through therapy, which I do go to therapy as a therapist. (laughs) I think it's very important, um, is how empowering it is to start recognizing and then challenging the stories that you tell yourself about yourself, because we all do it. I don't care how evolved or healthy you think you are. Mm -hmm. That internal voice has some repetitive loops that are not mm-hmm. useful. And it's unbelievable to me how true we think those stories are. Ugh. Like every time I realize, every time I challenge one, I'm astonished when I realize, wait, maybe that's not true. And mm-hmm. it's ridiculous that I'm still astonished at this point, but a hundred percent of the time I'm like, Oh, Oh my God. Oh, wow. What if that's not true about me or about what that person thinks of me or this relationship? What if there's a different story? And it's so empowering going back to power to realize you can create a different story. One that feels better. One right. that is less rooted in shame and guilt. Well, and all three of us sitting here all have daughters. Yes. Mm-hmm. So talk about the modeling. I mean, you explained yes. it really well. Yeah. So I was talking with my therapist about self-compassion and my daughter is 10 and I was saying, it, you know, I have had so many, you know, an eating disorder and years of distress about exercise or achievement, whatever goes along with that. And I was saying, if I could do anything, I would remove every thought like that from her brain. I would somehow make her immune to those insecurities and that path. And I would make her self-compassionate. I would just make her be careful and loving with herself. And my therapist said, where do you think she will learn that if not from you? If you're, you know, and sort of challenging me for even now, even though, you know, you're not still in the throes of an eating disorder, do you show her that you're compassionate with yourself? What are you doing to actually demonstrate that? Or are you most of the time still pretty self-punishing in other ways? And what I realized was I'm not, I'm very conscious of not saying anything self-critical about, you know, out loud, Mm -hmm. but my behaviors don't always say that. I mean, my behavior is very go, go, go. And I got to do this and now I got to do this. And so it just really made me get some perspective about, what I'm teaching her just through the way I'm living. I I think it's almost nothing to do with what we ever say to our daughters or sons. I think it's, they are just absorbing Mm -hmm. the way we move through the world. Yeah. And the more we can, as you say, model the behavior. And I feel like it is for our friends and families. We model the behavior that we want 
we all that we hope they will also have. Right. Um, I think in my business, I model the behavior that I hope my clients will find something of value with. Yeah. It's never, it, well, it is things we say. Our words are very, very powerful. But as parents, I think it's just, well, you're saying this, but you're rushing down this, you know, to get to their, your next appointment. Right. Yeah. I think it's the same with marriages and relationships and partnerships. What we show our children about what we believe in relationships yeah. and it's, partnerships. It's been really, it's probably been a very tricky time. It's yeah. been for very people. tricky for, yeah. I mean, Lee and I as partners, you know, just it's extraordinarily tricky. It's yeah. just as tricky as the, the world we're living in right now is uh, how do we behave right. in this brand new world and this brand new relationship? Yeah. And I think, uh, relationships in general are strained right now. I yeah. mean, people joke about this, but there will absolutely be a spike in divorces as a mm. result of COVID. Yeah. Well, you're, you've got people you literally yeah. are talking to counseling and yeah. so, so and you're seeing that there. I'm seeing that in a couple of my clients and I would say the marriage was already in distress. Yeah. And so this is not like, you know, the, the main cause, but I think in every relationship, there's stuff you sweep under the rug, even in healthy relationships. And the rug is now gone and we are literally all just existing. And, um, for some relationships that will prove to be detrimental, but the other thing that I think is a really hopeful message is a lot of relationships will, will experience what we call post-traumatic growth, which is going through a difficult time you rise to a higher level of, of psychological and emotional functioning. You mm -hmm. start to see each other in a different light. You appreciate things about each other that maybe you wouldn't have thought about without the difficult time, or you feel a deep sense of gratitude that I think we can get so disconnected from because we're so busy and important. You know, <laughs> I just, I, I agree That's with so that. True. I've been through a lot of things in my life and I see this, I'm not hopeless on this. this it feels very scary right now, but the darkest places in my life have led to the greatest places in my life. And and so when I get down, which I have, we've all this table been down in the last few days, I would guess because of what the world is going through. I, that is the thing I reach down. I always say I reach down deep and find that joy. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen this happen and the greater the pain, sometimes the greater the joy that follows. Yeah. And I, I feel like this is a time of correction, not just for ourselves, not just thinking about relationships and, you know, getting down to brass tacks of what's really important in our families and in our nation. But I think it is for the whole world, mm -hmm. maybe. Probably so. Um, I hope so. But I get overwhelmed going back to that low control stress. I get overwhelmed when I think about is the whole world going to really understand how important this is? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so then I have to reel myself in and say, well, you do what you start where you are. You start within the walls of your house. You start modeling different things. You teach your children to understand things like racism in a different way than you grew up understanding, even though you thought you understood it's, it's right. a different dialogue that needs to happen. And we're the ones who have to model that. And hopefully our children's generation is way better at that than we are. This is going to be an interesting generation because they right. are able now to go. I saw a friend of mine who took her two small children to the, uh, the march yesterday in mm -hmm. Charlotte. And, you know, she's going up against COVID. Yeah. She's going up against um, people being really close together. And I, I, know she, I know her and she probably had everything as best she could. But it was important for her to answer their questions by seeing. Right. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, we're, we're getting called, everybody's called to this challenge and nobody's going to get away from it. We're all, I feel like, and, uh, and so I'm just, I, I say this to Lee, I'm, I'm excited to be alive right now. It feels like the absolute scariest moment yeah. in all of our right? time. I mean, the gratitude is so important. Yeah. I mean, we talk about meditation and self-compassion and the more we have of that, the more we share to the other people in our lives and the world. Um, do you have any gratitude? practice tips or thoughts on that? Well, I mean, gratitude is one of the most consistent things. If you look at the research, who are the happy people, who are the resilient people, a hundred percent of the time, they are the grateful people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can say this, I've worked in very diverse patient populations, very different socioeconomic status, races, chronic illness populations, whatever. 
it is a hundred percent true that the richest people are not the happiest. And often the people with, if you looked on paper at what they've been through, how much is in their bank account, how, you know, what illnesses they battle on a daily basis. Sometimes they are the most profoundly thankful, peaceful, happy people that I've ever Mm -hmm. met. And so I get schooled on that regularly. I mean, I, because I think, um, we have such misconceptions about what it means to be thankful. And one of the things about, uh, feeling gratitude is that it's literally impossible for your brain to feel thankful and anxious at the same time because anxiety is all future focused, right? Right. It's what if this, what if that, let me catastrophize what gratitude requires is presence in order to Mm -hmm. feel thankful. I have to tune in right now to what is happening. And the truth is if we can be present, it's easier to feel thankful because almost always the present moment is okay. You know, if I took away your ability (laughs) to ruminate about the past or worry about the future, and you were always present, you would be pretty happy. Um, So I think that's what something like meditation does. It's almost like building a muscle of presence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you stay there, but you're more, more able to quickly come back to present moment gratitude. Okay, great. Then I get distracted again. Then I go down an Instagram rabbit hole. Great. (laughs) Well, I pull myself back out Mm -hmm. as opposed to just free floating in all of that anxiety. I think that is so, I love that you just said that because I believe that uh, the presence is the, is who we are and it's, we aren't the the thing that's going to possibly happen the next time. And the thing you talked about a while ago about Mm self-talk, that self-talk has nothing to do with the presence. Oh, nothing, never. never. And I've called it a record player before playing that record over and over and going, I'm going to put that on pause Mm -hmm. and I'm going to listen to who I am right now. Right. That's so good because those, that self-talk is almost always really old stories. It's like, it's like tire. Yes. Negative. It's like tire tracks in the mud that you've gone over a million times. So they're just deep and old and and to make new tracks, take some effort. You know, you got to intentionally turn the other way, but that's what getting present does. It makes your brain kind of go, let's go this way. And the more you do that, the easier it gets. Right. I mean, it is a muscle. The more you flex the negative muscle, the more it works. And that's why the story repeats. I know I struggle with that. Yeah. We all have my takeaway today. That's your takeaway today. I know. (laughs) True. Yeah. One of the many, um, you mentioned Instagram rabbit hole. I'm going media and news. Liz, you always kind of have a a nice love hate relationship. This is my rabbit hole. The news. Into the Instagram, and I go. The first thing I do is flip on the news, and I go, "Holy, you know, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> the news is not good, right?" And also, it, it's you've you've made a point about this before. Tell me about what, your first thing you do in the I morning. Love this. Tell yeah. me that story. So, uh, you know, this is a concept I use with clients sometimes who are a little resistant about meditation necessarily. You know, that feels kind of overwhelming. And what I say is, okay, let's focus instead on the first five minutes of your day. I want you to start curating the first five minutes of your day. I want you to own it because what happens for most of us is our alarm goes off. The alarm is on our phone. So we grab our phone and we immediately, the phone lights up and we look at the headlines (laughs) or we open the email or we get on social media. (laughs) That is essentially the same thing as just going right to your front door and opening it up and inviting in every news pundit, every person on Facebook, every email, every person who's sending you an email and just saying, y'all come on in and everybody yell at me at the same time. Like, just do it. Go for it. Y'all argue and yell at me and, and I'll just absorb that. That is how I would like to start my day. Um, and it's ridiculous. It isn't, it's hijacking and overstimulating and think about what could I do differently in the first five minutes? Don't, I'm not saying don't ever pick up your phone again, but five minutes, you know, like you said, Liz, lay in your bed, take 10 deep breaths and envision how you want your day to go. Set an intention, um, get up and go drink a glass of water while you look out at your yard or at a tree through your window, you know, that maybe that takes two minutes, um, say a prayer, do whatever it is. You're doing something centering before you invite the onslaught Mm -hmm. of all the media. And then just get the gist of it. You know, like, is the earth going to actually end today? 
Not, not really. No, I mean, it's maybe. not. So but what <laughs> actually is happening today? Yeah. This is happening. That's happening. I don't want to hear an opinion about it. Mm-hmm. I need to know the mm-hmm. facts. That's, yeah. and I think that's great. I, I really encourage people to be intentional about what you consume and how much you consume. Mm-hmm. I am not always good at this. And like I said, when something fires me up, I mean, I will get in a rabbit hole and it never feels good. And I then for that entire day, I'm not present. I'm impatient with my children. I'm, you know, it's like my brain is so overloaded to begin with that if you then throw a child on top of that, who's (laughs) whining, you know, I'm like, get out of here. You know, it's just awful. And then the days when I've limited it and I've really been intentional about just constantly saying, okay, what's the next right thing to do? what's the next right thing to do? I'm much more calm and present and I just feel less chaotic up and down and more steady. And to your point, the world does didn't end. And I still knew what was going on. Exactly. I just didn't have 14,000 voices screaming in my head all day. So let's do the perfect day. What's the perfect day? Let's start from the beginning. Ooh. I think I, I think I have an idea, but I'm going to let the professional do it. Okay. For me, what's the perfect day? Yeah, the perfect day. If you could line it up mm-hmm. so that you can get through homeschooling, mm-hmm. you can get through your partner um, having issues, mm-hmm. you can get through your two-year-old needing to go to the doctor because he or she's got the high fever mm-hmm. and you're sure for sure they've got COVID. Right. So <laughs> right. go ahead, line me up. What am I going to, how am I going to do? Well, what sets me up, I know for at least a better day is the days when I get up really early. I am a morning person. So, and, and everyone in my house gets up early. So if I want <laughs> any peace, I got to get up really early. I'm talking like five, five 30. I'm up, I meditate and then I get a workout done. And those two things are literally checked off the list. And then I like by 7am, I'm present and ready to engage and fix breakfast and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the So that sets me up better. If within that day, we also have some good connection, my kids are getting along. It's always a better day if we can get outside for some yep. reason that just makes everything better. Um, you know, and I think Greg, my husband and I like in quarantine specifically have done a pretty good job of handing off just it's, it takes constant communication when you have two people who are working and you've got kids, what is your schedule? What's mine? Okay. I'll do these two hours. Then we switch. And you're the good days are when you create space for each other in a compassionate way. Going back to compassion. I think a really important thing to remember is right now, no one has the structures that used to be in place that allowed some disconnection from each other. Right. Right. So you used to disconnect on your commute into the office or when your kids were at school for seven hours at a time, (laughs) you would disconnect and then feel refreshed maybe when they come home, that's not happening. And so we've got to understand um, we need to allow each other to have moments of disconnection in order to fill our buckets back up and just get some of that energy back. So on a good day, we are able to do that really lovingly with each other and really equally with each other. And, you know, the kids don't scream all day. And if you have that disconnection and something happens, you just go into your corner or in the closet or in your bathroom, lock the door and do eight to 10 breaths. Eight to 10 (laughs) breaths, right. And I think too, I mean, in couples where you're communicating, what's awesome is that you compassionately give each other that space. Mm -hmm. It's not like I have to beg Mm -hmm. for time to do this. And then Greg makes me feel guilty about it. He wants that for me the way I want it for him because we both understand the benefit of it. I think that's what's so so great about you and I, our partnership is just, we, we sort of really get each other. She can look, take two seconds to decide if I need my space. Yeah. And then she disappears. She like, in the thin <laughs> air. I'm like, where's she gone? I'm like, good. I needed that moment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It. And you don't personalize it. I mean, yeah. I think in a no. relationship and we've talked about this before, but relationships are like bank accounts, right? And every interaction you have is a chance to either make a deposit or a withdrawal. Sometimes we have to make withdrawals. Sometimes we have to have a fight or we have mm-hmm. to say, I am so mad at the way you did this, or I need a break from you right now. And if you have intentionally been making deposits along the way, the withdrawals don't break the bank and it's not devastating to have a fight or to say, Hey, we need like some space this afternoon. You do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. The couples that in the rest of the time are making deposits, meaning they're making effort. They're complimenting each other. They're doing thoughtful things for each other. They're recognizing each other's needs, all that stuff. They're touching each other. I mean, those are all deposits. And so if you've made enough deposits, 
it's okay to have some separation without anybody personalizing it or getting devastated by it. I love that analogy. I do too. I mean, because, you know, people pleasing people when your partner or other person isn't happy can take that very personally. And I think I would encourage anybody if you don't intuitively already understand your partner and I'm talking about children too, um, because that's an important relationship of communication that you find a way to learn more about them. And there's things out there. I mean, you know, the love languages and Mm. we've talked about the Enneagrams before you and I just did that. We love that. I mean, I think you and I really understand each other, but we went, Oh wow. When you figured out, well, I think if you're a really good partnership marriage, you love finding out things about Mm -hmm. each other. I think if you're not really interested in finding out things about each other, you might want to rethink your uh, idea of relationship. So, uh, you know, when you're doing deposits and I just love that analogy, Rebecca, and those deposits are like, if I had to say this, I'll get something, then that's Mm -hmm. not really a deposit. Right. Right. The deposits are, Oh my gosh, she looks so nice today. I think what I'll do is I'll go straighten up this area of the house or whatever you're going to do for your person. Yeah. And that's it's because you love them. That's unconditional love. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Conditional love is I give you this, you give me that. You right. Know? I, I make money. You have sex with me. Right, right. I bought you this. You now clean our house. That is it's, it's a transaction. That's not right. a relationship. And a lot of and- people have relationships that feel like transactions. Some people decide that that's okay. Quite honestly. I mean, I've, Mm. I have people in coaching who that's the way it works and it works for both of them. And it's like, okay. I mean, if you're both on the same page, the, the biggest predictor of marital happiness or partnership happiness is having congruence about what your roles should be. If you both agree, that's great. You're going to be happy. But a lot of times it's not total agreement. It's one person saying, here's how it should be. And the other person saying, I think this should feel better. Right. I should feel more. Um, But to your point, you got to remain curious. I mean, that is one of the secrets of, if you look at people who are happily married 30 or more years, they on average have 12 chronic unresolved issues that they mm. always fight and disagree about. These are the happy people. 12 wow. issues. Wow. Yeah. The difference is they do it respectfully and they learn to understand we are different in that way, but I'm going to stay curious about you and keep learning from mm. you about the ways we're different. I'm not going to decide you're a flawed person because we have this difference. And so they navigate those issues very differently. And curiosity is a big part of that. I love that. That's a good takeaway. Really curiosity. good. I mean, it's easy for the two of us, or maybe it's easy for you and Greg, but it's, for some people it's not. And, mm-hmm. and can they work on that if that hasn't been a part of their relationship? You definitely can. I okay. mean, you know, the great news is, and I, and I, obviously I'm a fan of counseling. Um, I think some of the most high functioning marriages are marriages in which they regularly go to counseling. Um, I mean, it's almost like thinking of it as a car, you know, you don't wait till all four wheels have fallen (laughs) off to take your car to the shop. You take it for maintenance. You know, sometimes people come to counseling and say, you know, we're good. We actually love each other a lot, but we know we could be better. And we are really open to learning that. And, And so that takes some humility and it takes some real honesty and being able to show up and say, here's what I need from you. Here's what I'm, you know, and being able to hear from the other person, you're not meeting my needs in this way and being willing to try something different. I love that. Yeah. And maybe I'm speaking for myself. Um, but do you think it's harder? Well, I did when you were younger, like twenties, thirties, I feel like mm. you can get in the rut of checking the boxes off. And then I feel like as I've gotten older and especially where I am now, it's just easier to mm-hmm. challenge your own beliefs and be more comfortable in who you are. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. What tends to happen right around age 40 is we all start sort of grappling with these existential questions of, you know, from, I would, I think from 20 to 40, we're on autopilot. Many of us, you know, it's okay. I'm going to know I'm going to go to college. Okay. Check. I'm going to get a job. Check. Now I should get married. Check. Now I should have kids probably two ish. I don't know. So (laughs) check. Um, and you know, get the house and the dog and the whatever. And then it's so it's, so it's sort of like unconscious moving. And then Mm -hmm. around 40, a lot of people go, what the hell am I doing? Like, who are you? Is this what I want? Much of this, I didn't necessarily think enough about. I just did it. And what 
really does, what is the stuff that feeds my soul really is the questions people start grappling with. And I don't know why it's right around 40. I mean, I think there's some subconscious thing of, Hey, my life's maybe halfway over. Yeah, mm-hmm. Like I, and I only get one shot. Like I should probably figure this out, but that's when a lot of people show up with distress, either about their work or their marriage or, or whatever it is. So, um, and I think it's okay to ask those questions really honestly. I think what's damaging is to continue pretending that you are something that you're not, mm-hmm. or that you are happy in a life that in your gut, you just know is wrong or a marriage that, you know, is wrong. Right. And, you know, we've talked before about Glenn and oh. Doyle's book untamed. And I think one of the most profound things she said in that book was for so long, I stayed in my marriage, um, for my children, because I felt like breaking up a family is a horrible thing to do. And then what I realized was that I was staying in a marriage for my children, but it was a marriage I would never wish on my children. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. And so what were you, what are you teaching them? And, and I'm not saying you should be flippant about breaking right. up your family and that it's not a big deal. It's an enormous deal. It's a big deal. I think we can but, speak to yes. that. <laughs> right. But, it, but sometimes yeah. it is the right decision. I very right. much believe that. Um, well, I think you can, I don't think anything is a black and white decision anyway. I was in an incredible marriage. My ex-husband, Aubrey, and I say to this day together a, a lot, we had a fantastic marriage until it wasn't, yeah. but we recognized it. Yes. We recognized it a little bit late. I mean, I, what you just said about forties and I don't now I'm in my sixties. I understand the forties, the fifties are even more. It's a, it's more of a conscious, you don't, if you're curious enough and if you're brave enough to be honest with your um, partner, mm-hmm. then you can really grow there. There's that place where you stop though. Some people do. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, we, I chose to get outside of a marriage. My husband and I did, and we're good friends because we understood where we needed to stop. Yeah. Um, I, and so that I would like to say that as far as being an ex married person, Lee being an ex married person, there's all kinds of reason to stay in a marriage and, and reasons to be out and to celebrate both. Yeah. And I think, you know, it is, um, unreasonable, you know, in our society, I heard a speaker speak on this once and he said, why is it considered success Hmm. to be in a miserable marriage that ends when you both die? Right. Why is that successful? Why is it not okay to say sometimes relationships have a shelf life and maybe the shelf life was 20 wonderful years. And then you both evolved into different people who wanted different things and that that can be amazing. It's, it doesn't mean it will be easy. And of course, having kids and all of that, it will be painful for them. And they may not really understand the journey that you're on. Mm-hmm. But the hope is that as they grow, they see that you were just, you embraced your truth. I mean, I think what yeah. a good thing to model for any child. Yeah, I don't want to stay stuck in a life that um, isn't true for me. And I would never want you to either. And the hurt will always be there. And for, for some of the people around Lee and I, that, that when we made our decision to be together, because they were in the, the trenches with us, mm-hmm. they saw some of the ugliness that, you know, not right. just the toughness that was, they, they, there's easier to point the finger and it's very difficult for them. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's, and that's, I have such compassion for my friends and family, especially my family that has, you know, really yes. hanging in there and trying to deal with things that they can't even imagine. Right. And I know it's just true for every, any type of relationship. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. And I think the more uh, it all goes back to compassion, yeah, right? Compassion. compassion is, I may not fully understand your experience, but yeah. I understand that you're a human being and therefore you deserve compassion from me. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's so hard to do. I think, you know, beyond what the life choices people make about marriage or whatever right now in our country, 
we're so polarized and it's so difficult to extend compassion. For me, it's very difficult to extend (laughs) compassion to a certain type of person right now, (laughs) but that's the work that means the work of compassion is right there. That's where I should be focusing it. It's easy to feel compassion for y'all, you know, my kids and y'all and you Mm -hmm. know, the people I like. The people that we all kind of understand, but the ones we don't understand it is. So, I mean, I think the takeaway I have sort of for today is that exact thing. I mean, we may not understand what's going on in the world because it is insane. We can all agree on one thing. It's insane. Mm -hmm. But what we can understand is what's going on inside of ourselves and how we can react to that world and react to the people around us, whether we, you know, people we love or unlove. Right. And I think that's where change starts is we have to know ourselves and accept ourselves before we can even affect change anywhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to know yourself in order to teach your children anything. And right now I think is a good, as you said, it's sort of this correction time. And I hope what that correction brings is people being willing to look inward and get still and really try to understand what are the stories I've been told? What are the ones I can start to challenge and how might that allow me to show up differently Mm -hmm. in the world? I love that. I mean, so many powerful things to think about. I love having these discussions I know. with you, I Liz, always. It, and Rebecca. We did I know. pretty much world peace. Yeah. We got it right, we right here it. at this kitchen table, <laughs> six feet apart, baby. Right. Oh, okay. Tell everybody how they can find you. Okay. Yes. So the easiest way is probably our practice website, which is www.soteal.com. So it's S-O-T-I-L-E, like so tile. Um, that's the easiest way that will tell you a lot about our practice. Um, it's a family practice. So it's me, my sister and my parents. Um, and we do coaching, we do speaking, we do consulting. There's a lot of good information there. My email is also there, which is probably the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rebecca. This has been thank fun. You all so and, much. Um, we look it. forward to seeing you hopefully in our workout soon, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love always it. come I, back and teach. I stream it all the time. I uh, think it's good. The best. Oh, you're good the best. Stuff. Well, thank right. you. Everybody be healthy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hilliard Studio Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a moment to subscribe to the Hilliard Studio Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and a review so that others can find us. We're looking forward to reopening Hilliard Studio Method soon, but until we know when we can do that, we're going to keep providing you with great HSM content, including at-home workouts, healthy tips for you and your family, as well as candid conversations with Lee and Liz. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hilliard Studio Method for all the latest HSM news. Book classes, stream workouts, buy gear, and much more at our website, HilliardStudioMethod.com. That's it for now. We'll talk to you next week.